0: And now we come to our time of instruction in the Word, and our passage this morning continues in 1 Timothy. We are in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to pick up with verse 5. It's it's really, it's sort of a conclusion of a thought, and then it's a transition on to verse 6. We'll read verses 6 through 10, and then we'll skip a few verses. I'll explain that in a few moments, and jump to verses 17, 18, and 19. So as we read uh, Paul's Uh, Words to first to Timothy in First Timothy, chapter six, never forget that by the work of the Holy Spirit, these words of the Apostle Paul are at the same time, the very words of God and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to your word this morning. We would ask for that working of your Holy Spirit, not the same work as that was in the Apostle Paul, because that was a a work of fulfillment of the promise that uh, Jesus said that the Spirit would lead them into all truth. And, Father, that is a prophetic gift, a gift by which they speak your very words. Father, we need your Holy Spirit, but we need your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds in order to understand that inspired word. That's what we're praying for. That you would enable us to perceive, in the words of Paul, truly the very words of the living God. And your spirit would enable us to not only understand, but to internalize, uh, to possess, to treasure, to store up, uh, to know, to understand. But all of that, Lord, must translate into how we live, how our hearts are changed, how our actions become changed, how what we know translates into how we do things. And that's what we would pray for. Move us, Lord, from the cognitive understanding to the behavioral application. Make us not just hearers of the word, but those who are doers of the word, because this is pleasing in your sight. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin by validating Paul's claim in verse five that some people actively pursued godliness as a means to financial gain. So let me give you a couple of uh, ancient examples and then some contemporary examples that demonstrate Paul's point. Uh, In Luke chapter 16, verses 13 and 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, but there are Pharisees who are in the audience. And he says, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. So the Pharisees loved money, and they actually used their religious influence over the Jewish people to pursue that which they loved. Then also, uh, in Jesus' time, the high priestly family. It was well known in the New Testament era, even before the birth of Christ, that the high priestly family line had a well-known reputation for greed. Now, during Jesus' time and, and sometime after, all all five of the sons of Annas, the high priest, as well as his son-in-law, Caiaphas, all five of them, uh, six of them then, became high priest. So we read about Annas and Caiaphas at the same time, because while Caiaphas was high priest, his father-in-law was the, as it were, the high priest emeritus. But they all controlled the wealth of the temple, which came from the tithes and the offerings of the Jewish people. And this wealth was immense. Uh, the temple treasury was the wealthiest place in all of the ancient world and the Romans knew and understood this. And the high priestly family, because of that, was likewise extremely wealthy. So Paul was well aware that there are people who would pursue godliness or the form of godliness or religion for the sake of earthly gain, for the sake of, of wealth. Now, contemporary examples. All it takes is just a quick Google on uh, how much are evangelists worth, and it'll pop up a list of 10 people. But let me just mention uh, just a few. Kenneth Copeland, uh, some of you know the name, perhaps some of you don't. He's reportedly worth $760 million. The guy's in his 80s. He's been doing this since the 50s. He's extremely wealthy. Pat Robertson, well known. Uh, His net worth today is about $100 And then Benny Hinn, the charismatic faith healer. Uh, 42 million. He's also a health, wealth, prosperity gospel, like Kenneth Copeland and like Pat Robertson. And then you have Joel Osteen. Uh, on the low side, he's estimated to be worth 40 million. On the high side, something like 100 million. Now, these wealthy men and their very wealthy ministries are a sad confirmation that many people believe. That even the Christian religion is a means to worldly gain. And that the Christian faith is the way to become more prosperous in this life. So Paul is referring to something that was not only true in his day, but is also continues to be very true in our day. And so that's why Paul is warning Timothy to protect the sheep uh, from such wolfish deceivers who get into the ministry role in order that they might gain, have a financial gain from it. But then that leads Paul to take up the concept or the question of what is genuine contentment. Uh, there are those who pursue wealth, uh, riches, even religiously to do so. And so it causes Paul to think about, well, what is what is real contentment? What is true contentment? Uh, and then he goes on to tell us that that true contentment is supposed to be part, a very necessary part of the godly Christian life. That is, when we have true godliness, when we have the true beliefs, and the true practices that that truly honor the living God, the true God, that really honor the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we have that true kind of godliness, then what we need to have with it is, in fact, great gain. And that great gain that the apostle tells us is having contentment, true contentment. And that uh, godliness with true contentment is great gain. So the question then is, what is godly contentment? And so that's what Paul is going to tackle next. He does this in verses 6 through 10. Then he has a brief exhortation to Timothy and Timothy's personal life. And then in verses 17, 18, 9, he really refer, returns to the topic of contentment. And we're going to look at these eight verses then and take them together, verses 6 through 10, and then verses 17, 18, and 19. The place I want to begin, then, is with the main idea, the big truth, the big lesson that we need to appreciate. And again and again, we've been focusing upon the big truth, the big lesson in the book of First Timothy that has to do with the definition and purpose of the church. Uh, The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So because the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, believers, those who are members of the church, must live the way of truth. And as Paul is going to describe it for here, the way of truth is, in fact, a life of contentment. That's how we're supposed to live. The true way we're supposed to live as Christians, the genuine way, is a life in which we express contentment in what God has given to us. So Paul gives us the presentation of that in these eight verses. And I've outlined them in terms of the following five points. Uh, God's contentment defined. Uh, then the in and out reality that Paul speaks to. Thirdly, there's a 10th uh, commandment connection. Fourthly, we should see the connection between contentment and wealth and the second greatest commandment. And then finally, there's a perspective on the future investment that's connected to contentment. So let's begin with defining God's contentment, contentment according to God. Well, there's a general definition of contentment that we ought to first think about uh, because it's not just in the christian faith i mean the word content being content and contentment is is a normal word in the english language as it is in most languages uh so the the dictionary would would point us in this direction contentment is an emotional state of well-being so it's an internal state where we experience a sense of satisfaction that is the satisfaction and contentment means there's, there's no wants or needs or desires that are tugging at us or competing for our attention or making me feel like we need something more. So it translates into an inner sense of tranquility and inner peace because we are satisfied with respect to our needs and wants in the world. But then Paul goes on in verse eight to define contentment in this way for the follower of Christ. He says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, look at the starkness of what Paul says. He's talking about basic necessities. He mentions food and clothing. He says for us as Christians, if if we have these, we are content. If we only have these, but we're Christians, then we should have that emotional uh, state of well-being a sense of satisfaction Uh, we should not be experiencing uh, feelings of want or need tugging at us all of that when we simply have food and clothing when we simply have the basic necessities of life now is this easy well wasn't easy for the disciples, apparently, because in Matthew 6, verse 33, 32 and 33, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, in fact, that whole passage from verse 25 on, when he's speaking to them, he's speaking to their anxieties, their worries, their concerns about, as it were, uh, the things of this world that they are trusting in. They're anxious about the necessities of life. And so Jesus gives them this promise. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So at the very beginning of their discipleship, Jesus was teaching the disciples to focus upon the kingdom of God and to be content to rest in the Father's care for them the Father's promised care for them and his love for them and the promise that he's going to take care of them and give them all that they truly need. Now, that's not new teaching. That is to say, when Jesus taught this, he was not teaching something new to the biblical faith. In fact, if you went back a thousand years earlier than Christ, if you went all the way back to the writings of The sweet psalmist of Israel, even David, King David, uh, you would find Psalm 23 expressing these most necessary truths about contentment, uh, even beginning in the first verse where David writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want that is to say, I shall lack nothing. Think about this for a moment. Spurgeon would have us be reminded that David said, the Lord is my shepherd, and that every Christian who truly knows Christ can say, Christ is my shepherd, and therefore my needs are those which he knows, and my concerns are those which he takes into account In my context, in my situation, are all those things which Christ, as the good shepherd, is attentive to. And we see in this, we see in David's own writing, we see in David's own life, that trusting in Christ as his shepherd, trusting that God is our shepherd, is the secret of contentment. Because if we truly believe that the Lord is our shepherd and that we shall lack nothing, then whether we are in a situation like the Apostle Paul says, whether I abase or whether I abound, I have learned in every circumstance to be content. Because if we're united to Christ, then we can do all things, no matter what they might be like, through Christ who gives us strength. So to be content, to have godly contentment, is to be yoked to a satisfaction in Christ, to be content in Christ, to have a deep trust and confidence that the good shepherd will shepherd our lives in such a wonderful and perfect way that we will surely have our food and clothing. We will surely have everything we actually truly need to be happy and to be satisfied, knowing Christ will take care of us. Now, We have to keep working on this as believers. That is to say, we have to seek this life of contentment. We must hold tightly to Christ as our shepherd. We must believe his promise that we will lack nothing. Because this is the way of truth. This is the life of contentment. To testify truly to the church, the purpose of the church, we must trust in Christ in this way. Now, the second... Uh, thing that the Apostle Paul calls our attention to is what I call this in and out reality. Verse 7, Paul says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Nothing in, nothing out. Which tells us that all our worldly possessions that we've acquired after we come into this world, uh, all of that, the riches and wealth, They're not going to last. We won't take them out of this world. They do not have any eternal duration. They have no eternal value. They can, in fact, be a hindrance, even, blinding us to those things that are of true importance. Jesus pointed this out in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 21. He told this story. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, that is the man who was producing so much, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Verse 20. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now, this in and out reality is the reality check that even Jesus story gives us to help us focus on what we do take with us when we actually leave this world. You see, either we leave this world and we leave it with the eternal life that we have in Christ and treasures that we've stored up in heaven because we've been rich toward God, or we leave this life with eternal death to be spent in the eternal hell. That is why we must not find our sense of contentment in the things of this world. That's why Jesus said back in Matthew verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our treasure is in heaven, Our hearts will be there, and our hearts will be content. And this is the way of truth, the life of contentment. Now, the third uh, point that we find in this passage is really about this uh, 10th commandment connection. Uh, Verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin And destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. What's the difference between pangs and pain? I looked it up. I had to look it up. Um, Not all pain are pangs, pangs are sharp pain. Very sharp pain. Something felt that pierces deeply is a pang, And that's what Paul is concerned to convey. Now, how are these two verses, though, connected to the Tenth Commandment? That's the question. Well, the Tenth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 17, is this. You shall not covet. That is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's manservant or his maidservant or his livestock, or his donkeys, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. But what Paul is describing in these two verses amounts to the sin of coveting. The desire to get rich, the love of money, the craving, as the Apostle Paul describes it, all of these are the essence of what it means to covet. Now, the proper definition of of coveting is this. It's an intense desire for something, but it's a misdirected desire for those things because it's misdirected toward things which are not lawful to possess or not lawful for you as a particular person to possess. So species of coveting would be things like envy or greed or lust. These are forms of coveting. And coveting is the very opposite of being content. If content is the virtue, coveting is the vice. Now, Paul's concern here specifically has to do with the coveting that shows up in this form of the love for money. And the pursuit of earthly riches and how it proves destructive uh, to God's way of life for all believers. That's his concern. It will pierce us with many deep pains and bring destruction and ruin to our lives if we are moved in that direction. The love of money is a root of all sorts and all kinds of evil. And those who desire to get rich fall into many temptations and to many snares and find their lives destroyed. Why? Why? Because there is no way to live a godly life while coveting occupies and preoccupies your heart. And the only answer, the only answer to what the 10th commandment speaks of is contentment, to be content. Because that's the way of truth. That's the way that God has designed for us. Because contentment ultimately says I have no other God in my life than God himself. The answer to the 10th commandment is the first commandment. You shall have no other God before you. Which is why Jesus says you can serve God and love God or you can serve money and love money. But you can't do both. If you love money, you will hate God. And if you truly love God, you will not love money. We come then to the fourth point that we find in this passage, and it's about contentment and wealth and the second greatest commandment and how these things are connected together. This connection shows up in verses 17 and 18 where Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God." who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share. Uh, Paul warns the rich, and he warns them about the dangers of wealth, riches and wealth. Wealth can invigorate, now listen carefully, wealth can invigorate the boastful pride of life but so can being smart and so can being talented or being gifted in athleticism or having movie star good looks. It's not the wealth or the riches that is the issue. It is loving them. It is serving them as if these things were a person's God, as if you can trust in riches to take care of you when only ultimately God can take care of you. So Paul takes the focus back to God. Paul tells the rich to recognize that God has given them this wealth. God has provided them richly so that they might enjoy these riches. But then in verse 18, Paul is making it pretty clear. Paul is telling us what God considers the proper direction in terms of the true enjoyment of wealth. Look at what Paul says. The true and great blessing from God is to direct those riches in the service of others, which is tantamount to using that wealth and riches in the service of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's the connection. All the doing of good works that Paul talks about, and all the generosity, all the sharing, is toward other persons. It is caring for them. It is treating them as if they were our neighbors. It is treating them as being worthy of this kind of service because they're made in the image of God. It is using wealth in these ways to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. That is what Paul is commanding the rich. That is what Paul is saying to the rich. This is how you truly enjoy what God has given to you. Now, it matches then what Paul says also in Philippians 2. We read this passage, but specifically verses 2 through 5 again. Paul says, Complete my joy by being full of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So how do we look at this? This is the way of truth, the true life of believers who are called to live out God's truth in this world All of us are to live this way, but specifically, this is how wealthy believers are to live out the truth of the gospel. They are to use the blessings of riches and wealth for the blessings of others. And that leads to the fifth point, as Paul takes us to verse 19, and it really is about uh, the future investment. He speaks of storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, Paul here is echoing Matthew six twenty. He's echoing the words of Jesus, where Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. So Paul is still instructing the rich uh, that the wealth that God has given to them, this worldly wealth, must be used as a form of investment in their futures, in their heavenly treasure, uh, investment made on behalf of the kingdom of God, investment in which they use their worldly wealth for the kingdom and for kingdom service. How? Well, by caring for others, by living out the second greatest commandment, by practicing uh, the appropriate moral code of the Christian, where God is first, others are second, And we count ourselves as third. Now, Paul says that in this way, those who are rich in this life may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, understand, Paul is saying that you who are wealthy, your true life does not lie in your wealth. But your true life lies in the proper use of your wealth. And the proper use of your wealth is in a second commandment direction, using what you have in order to serve others. Now, we need to come back to what is said in verse eight, because it's difficult for those who are wealthy. Count yourselves among those who are wealthy. It is difficult for those who are wealthy to grasp the truth That if we have simply food and clothing, the basic necessities, that having just these, we will be content. It's difficult. In my first pastoral call uh, 40 years ago, I was an associate pastor in a church in northern Virginia in a very wealthy Washington, D.C. suburb. Our church had a partnership with an inner-city church in Washington, D.C., a church that was located in Anacostia, which back then was perhaps the poorest among the poor areas in in Washington, D.C. Twice a year, a group from our church would go and spend a Saturday uh, on that church's premises. They were doing service projects, which that church had designed and set up. Now, after one of these service projects had had concluded at a conversation with with a very wealthy woman in the in the church uh, our church uh, she had participated in this she was there the whole day. she saw a whole church of people who scarcely had much more than food and clothing they they had not much more than the basic necessities and and here's what she said to me i don't see how people who live that way could ever be happy. She said, after seeing all these people all day, I don't see how people who live this way could ever be happy. But then she went on with her observation. Uh, Yet they were. She found them to be happier in their poverty as Christians than all of the non-Christian people that she knew who were personally very, very wealthy. You know, 40 years later, the lesson of that conversation isn't that it's noble to be poor. Not at all. But rather, it's to realize that finding true contentment in this life, in the possession of the things of this life, is a seriously misguided way of living especially for any of us who are Christians to ever be tempted in this direction in that, in its place, instead, we've got to take the words of Christ seriously. We've got to take Paul's definition of contentment seriously. We've got to genuinely, genuinely believe that True godliness, having our true faith in Christ, the true and living Redeemer, and having that with contentment is great gain. It's the greatest gain that we could possibly have. And it involves that godliness that expresses and is committed to the I am third perspective. To understand the Christian life in this way. It's to hold Christ as a first And primary significance. It's to love him above everything else. And then it's to hold others as of second importance. As Paul says, to consider others as more significant than ourselves. And then it's to reckon ourselves as third. To reckon ourselves as those who know we've been called to serve. Now that is what Paul says is truly life. The earthly nature of the life that God has given to us in Christ is to be a life that imitates Jesus himself. In Ephesians five one, the apostle says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us. And how did Christ love us such that we should walk in, walk in love like him? He came to serve. And so we read in Ephesians 2.10, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are the service we do for others. This is why God has saved us this is why god calls us to count others more significant than ourselves this is why we're called to look not only to our own interests but to the interest of others and to do this to really do this is to practice contentment not just the rich or the wealthy but all of us are called to this because the church is the pillar And the buttress of the truth. Every believer. All of us. The church. We must live this way of truth. We must live this life in accordance with contentment. Because Jesus said our Heavenly Father knows everything we need. Everything unbelievers so desperately seek. The Father knows we need them. And the Apostle Paul promised My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let us believe this. May it be so. Amen. Our God and Father, uh, our prayer would be that you would help us, help us to grasp all of the significant things that the Apostle says in this passage Because we live in the richest country in the world, in the richest time of history. And we as Christians are among those who are greatly, greatly affluent. So help us to take these words to heart. Help us to think much about what it means to be truly content. Uh, Help us to be able to somehow see that if we simply had food and our clothing and jesus that ultimately in the final analysis that would be enough we would know jesus as our shepherd that we would lack nothing and then, father help us to go into this world realizing you've called upon us commissioned us designed us as followers of christ to serve others give us the grace to do so by the work of your holy spirit give us the grace to do so May we, in this way, adorn the testimony of the gospel. May we, in this way, carry forth the message of the church, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth, that the living God has loved a broken humanity, that Christ is the only Redeemer. Faith and trust in him grants us everlasting life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're concluding once again with hymn number 559, which I believe speaks so well to the themes that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. Father, I know that all my life is portioned out for me. The changes that are sure to come, I do not, I do not fear to see. I ask thee for a present mind intent on pleasing thee. I would not have the restless will that hurries to and fro seeking for some great thing to do or secret thing to know, I would be treated as a child and guided where I go. I ask thee for the daily strength to none that ask denied, a mind to blend with outward life while keeping at thy side, content to fill a little space if thou be glorified. In service which thy will appoints, There are no bonds for me. My secret heart is taught the truth that makes thy children free. A life of self renouncing love is one of liberty. And now receive these final words written by the Apostle Paul, but given by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. As we go forth into this week, in whatever ways in which we may be. Living out the Christian life, let's go with these words from God. Be at peace among yourselves, brothers, while you admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. Sanctify you completely. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. God bless you through this week. In Christ's name.